0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books in African-American Studies. This is Sean Hamilton, your host. Our guest today is Robert Castanello, and his book is entitled To Render Invisible, Jim Crow and Public Life in New South Jacksonville. Robert, welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Great. Thank you. Thank you for um, joining us. First, um, I guess, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how you came to write the book.
1: I'm... uh Uh, professor in history at the University of Central Florida and the book is an outgrowth um, from my graduate you know student days and research I was I did my dissertation on the city of Jacksonville and was kind of um, as I I would think most dissertations are sort of meandering and and really didn't have a focus and it wasn't until I stepped away from it for a little while and I was able to find sort of a unifying theme which you know ultimately became this idea of public speech and space that I, that I kind of latched onto. But it took me really a long time to kind of get something that I, I thought could kind of tie a lot of the things that I was interested in in the city of Jacksonville. So, for example, uh, I know that you've read the book. For those who haven't read the book, the, the chapters are sort of divided up by themes. And so there are a number of themes and subjects I was really interested in, like labor history, the women's movement. Um, politics and things like this. And so I really kind of wanted to focus each chapter on a specific theme in Jacksonville from the end of the Civil War until the election of 1920. But the biggest problem, the biggest hurdle is sort of finding a unified theme or or mode of analysis that would bring all those different kind of subjects together. And it took me a really long time to do that. I graduated in 2000 from Florida State University. And of course, the book was published this year in 2013. So it took me a long time, and I sort of published smaller parts of this in other places until I really kind of felt that I had a grasp on a unifying idea mm-hmm. that could tie all of the research together.
2: Got you. Got
0: you. Now, why Jacksonville? Jacksonville.
1: Well, the thing that happened was I took a graduate seminar class in urban history with a great urban historian, uh, Raymond A. Mole. And in that class, he kind of challenged us. He said, well, you know, we're studying urban history. Pick something. And and he was you know, not only a, a professor, but a mentor in, in a lot of ways. And so he encouraged us to pick topics that could be the springboard to, to greater or, you know, further research. And we had a number of issues and things we sort of looked at in the beginning of class and say, here are things that you know, urban historians look into, select one of those, and then eventually write a research paper on it. And so I got really interested in uh, the Great Migration, to be honest with you. And I'm yeah. talking about the first Great Migration, the one that's sort of the World War One era Great Migration. Okay. And specifically, there's a book by um, Joe Trotter on it. He's a, a professor of history at Carnegie Mellon. And at the time I had read his book, and I thought, I really want to do something on the Great Migration. And so, you know, one of the things when you're in graduate school, you're sort of place-bound. And so I was kind of looking around the landscape, and I thought, well, what city in the state of Florida, you know, would have been impacted by this first Great Migration during World War One? And, of course, Jacksonville was that city. So that's kind of what attracted me to Jacksonville. And then I pursued that. That was sort of the... I guess the genesis of the entire project was that one class and then it ultimately accumulated into the book that was published this year. Got
0: okay. you. And so what, what was unique about Jacksonville in, in that regard that would make it affected by the Great Migration or impacted by it?
1: Well, it's the growth of population, that was the, one of the things that really inspired me. And You know, I, I worked with uh, Ray Mole and, and Kenneth Goings, as a graduate student, one of the things I got out of Kenneth Goings' class, and of course, this is also one of the themes of the Great Migration book that was um, edited by Joe Trotter that I mentioned earlier, is the idea that, that people in the mid-90s, when I took this class, were questioning what the Great Migration was. There was sort of this story of the Great Migration, of African Americans moving to the North, and really moving to the North within this narrative of escaping the South, mm-hmm. you know? And so one of the things that intrigued me was I had a city in Jacksonville that people, you know, in one sense, you know, there's one variable where African-Americans are moving from Jacksonville, and it's clear that's happening. They're going to primarily the Northeast. Uh, I'm not trying to say that it didn't happen, but what was really interesting was there were more African-Americans moving to Jacksonville than leaving Jacksonville during Mm -hmm. that time. So if anything, um, Jacksonville was more of a magnet than a place of escape. And so I got really interested in why that was happening and sort of the the greater impact that a large population of African-Americans moving to one southern city would have on that southern city. And so that's kind of the overlying question over the years I was trying to answer first, you know, as a graduate student and then later on as a scholar in the field.
0: Okay, okay. Um, One of the big themes in your book is just the relationship or exploring the relationship between the public space and and democracy itself. Um, You, you mentioned, uh, I guess, Jurgen Habermas early in the book. Um, Who is that? How do his ideas contribute to, to your work?
1: Well, um, Jurgen Habermas is a, um, a German philosopher and he came up with the idea of the public sphere. And, you know, he was primarily interested in explaining, the impact i guess of you know sort of the, the the enlightenment or at least the impact the enlightenment had on the general population and so you know he looked at um 17th 18th century europe and looked at the rise of kind of like the salons and things like this and said well this represents this public sphere and here are the average person getting interested in politics in ways that weren't the case in europe you know centuries before And one of the things that he argued was that this public sphere operated in a way that created um, an environment that was kind of democratized, so that you had people of different class backgrounds being able to come into the public sphere, into the public space, and engage in some political discourse about the nature of society, and thus um, they would have a role in the formation of Politics and you know, ideally, policy to some extent. And of course, you know, I say this, and I don't say this as sort of an advocate for the idea because you know, it's very, it's very sort of narrow. And of course, you know, it doesn't include the working class. It doesn't include people on the margins. Mm -hmm. What I was getting at the book, so I want to kind of add that caveat to it. But he introduces to the notion or the concept of a public sphere, Mm -hmm. and you know, the idea that we're all that there is this kind of public and we all operate in this public and within this public, all of us, you know, no matter what our background is are actors in the public. And so sort of this is what, you know, I guess the kernel I was trying to get at.
0: Okay. Okay. And now, how, how did the civil war um, affect the sort of struggle for public space in Jacksonville?
1: Well, the, the civil war created a, a, a very specific set of circumstances that had not been part of, I would even you know go so far as to say the southern landscape or maybe even you know the, the entire united states not just jacksonville itself but the civil war especially at the end of the civil war created a sort of question of what is to be done with these african americans you know not only the ones who were enslaved but also the ones who were not you know and the question was of course whether and if they would be full citizens you know and you know some might look back as far as Dred Scott to say, "Well, here the Supreme Court states explicitly that African Americans are not citizens," and so that question, sort of um, in in a social history framework, became became very salient at the end of the Civil War because what we had happening in Jacksonville, and this was not unusual, I think, throughout the South or even throughout the North, was the idea that you know once the Civil War settled the question of slavery, because at the end of the Civil War it was clear that slavery was no longer going to exist. So the question of slavery and slavery's future in the United States was was settled before you know, Appomattox. But the question of African Americans as part of the body politic, as members of American society as citizens of the United States was not settled, and these were the things that African Americans were asking themselves at the end of the Civil War. And I found evidence in Jacksonville where these things, you know, first were part of sort of private correspondence, where you had African American soldiers who were stationed in Jacksonville who were writing home to their loved ones, and who were specifically and explicitly questioning what it meant to be a citizen of the country of the united states mm-hmm. and this is in you know between april and october of 1865 mm-hmm. you know long before the 15th amendment
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so you know once that happens you know we see african americans then at the after the civil war take to the streets in jacksonville and begin to organize and mobilize and have very public um, demonstrations to give african american men the right to vote so that they could have a say in the upcoming 1865 um, Constitutional Convention, and those who are unfamiliar with the importance of this, of course, this was the first Reconstruction-era Constitution in Florida, and this was done, you know, before um, congressional Reconstruction, this is what we call the period referred to as presidential Reconstruction, and of course, they did not allow African Americans to have a say and they did not allow African Americans to be franchised to vote or participate. Yet, what we see happening in the fall of 1865 before the Constitutional Convention is African Americans in Jacksonville mobilizing to say, hey, we deserve to vote, and it's our understanding that for us to have um, impact. In our political lives, we need to vote and we need to participate in this. And of course, they were ignored in 1865. But two years later, when we have congressional reconstruction, those questions come back to the table for them and they are already mobilized and they're part of the Republican Party in Northeast Florida. And so they do get that opportunity, that chance. And I think the point of the whole story is to acknowledge and identify that it's African-Americans who are questioning these things. I mean, there was, I remember when I was an undergraduate um, taking history classes, and the big question of the day was always, who freed the slaves? Mm -hmm. And so there was, at the time, when I was a student, there was this great debate between James McPherson and Vincent Harding over who freed the slaves. And so there was this, um, you know, James McPherson had the idea that it was Abraham Lincoln, the uh, the Union army that freed the slaves, you know, it's sort of this Weberian this approach that the, 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 you know, change happens from above mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of ways, or at least, you know, in the middle or above. And Vincent Harding said, no, no, the slaves freed themselves. They're the ones who pushed the issue of emancipation as a war aim because they realized it was, their best way to um, to end slavery. And so it was this debate on, you know, who freed the slaves with this top-down approach, or was it this bottom-up approach? And so there was this, sort of this vigorous debate. And for me, with this period really kind of emphasized, because, you know, once slavery is out of the equation, it's, you know, who introduces the notion of civil rights into mm-hmm. American discourse. And I, you know, think it's African-Americans at the end of the Civil War who pushed this notion of what does it mean to be a citizen? What does it mean to have civil rights in a country that no longer has slavery? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And now, what is the mob public? That was um, something you sort of you began to talk about in your book.
1: Yeah, that's, that was an idea uh, I was thinking about because that comes in the chapter when we have African-Americans emerging in political life. Really, for the first time in Jacksonville, in overt ways, you know, in ways that are sort of, you know, quote unquote, socially accepted. Mm-hmm. And the idea of the mob public is this notion that um, conservative white politicians, and I and I and I say that, you know, I, I'm not trying to say this is Democrat versus versus um, Republican in the late nineteenth century because I right. think you had um politicians on both sides who were not eager to have African Americans have full participation so the sure. idea of African Americans participating in public life isn't you know isn't just um something that republicans protect and you know and democrats avoid mm-hmm. but it's actually on you know conservatives on both sides of the party were really trying to to keep African Americans from enjoying full political participation. And this idea of the mob public, I think, emerges in the late 19th century when African Americans exert political autonomy for the first time in Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that in, in the 1860s and 1870s, when African Americans are sort of ushered into the Republican Party and are sort of discouraged um, from joining the Democratic Party they begin to politically mobilize and they begin to become numerically very important to the republican party in florida especially in northeast florida as far as getting republicans elected in what had been a predominantly um, democratic stronghold Mm -hmm. but what happens is there is a strain in the republican party between liberal and conservatives and conservative republicans wanted to preserve um, white authority, or at least, you know, you could, if, if, to be charitable, you could say white mentorship of black political participation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And there were a number of liberals, Republican liberals, primarily um, African-American Republicans, who wanted to exert au- political autonomy in that. And mm-hmm. so they would run candidates who were quote-unquote radical, you know, and whether they were really radical or not, I mean, you have to take it case by case, but they were perceived as being radical because they were going against sort of a conservative Republican um, establishment. And, stuff. Mm-hmm. and so what happens is they begin to exert this autonomy at the time when reconstruction is ending. Mm-hmm. And this is where fe- the federal government is taking less and less of an interest in reconstructing the South and are leaving is leaving the South to its own devices. And so you have in Florida in the 1870s and 1880s sort of a decline in the political power of the Republican Party and the return of the Democratic Party mm-hmm. as a political force in Florida. And this is often, you know, called the you know the the Redeemers. You know, yes. the the return of the Bourbons and things like this. Yeah. Yeah. And what happens with African Americans is it's very interesting for them because I think in the 18 18- late 1870s, throughout the 1880s, is African-Americans actually enjoy greater polit- political participation than they did in the 1860s and early 1870s. And this might sound sort of counterintuitive, because this also coincides with the emergence of Jim Crow and disfranchisement and things like this. And so what, what takes place is African-Americans become a very important voting block that switches between the democratic and republican party depending on where they think their fortunes might lie and they become this sort of swing vote between the two and this is not throughout the entire state of florida but it's really in play in northeast florida and in a place like jacksonville Mm -hmm. because there's so many northerners who had moved there after the civil war that the republican party was very competitive with the democratic party and so as a result of this African-Americans get perceived as a group of people who are sort of, you know, their vote is open for purchase,
2: mm-hmm. essentially.
1: And these are sort of the accusations. So it's the idea that why, you know, African-Americans are not a reliable voting block, and thus, you know, one should uh, remove them from the body politic, essentially. And this is where you get the emergence of this notion of the mass public. Mm-hmm. Because the idea is that those people who should be voting, you know, quote-unquote, should be the ones who are the educated elite. It's sort of this Republican style of political participation, Mm -hmm. this idea that those who are educated, those who are the political elite, the aristocracy in a sense, should be the ones who are front and center in political life. And those who are not should sort of take a back seat and allow the elite to make the best decisions that are made for the will of the general public. And this was, you know, sort of the political philosophy and the understanding of how politics work, you know, pre- 1828, you know, mm-hmm. it was Andrew Jackson and the Democratic Party who sort of introduced direct democracy and the idea of one man, one vote, and mass voting, and it sort of, you know, made the Republican style of government um, archaic, almost,
2: you mm-hmm. know. And
1: yet, when African Americans joined the body politic after uh, the Civil War, that notion of Republican style <laughs> government becomes right. vogue for white conservatives, because right. what they say, essentially, is African Americans should take a back seat. Because they are a mob public, you know they are um, dangerous to the political process, and so when you see African Americans in the 1880s and 1890s in Jacksonville begin to sort of exert um, any kind of mobilization, and remember that you know their vote wasn't locked into the Republican Party necessarily. Mm-hmm you know this begins to cast them as a mob public has has a group of people who you know don't deserve to participate equally in democracy and this is why and how we get in florida things like the poll tax mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, what, what's called the Australian multiple ballot system, which is meant mm-hmm. to disfranchise black voters mm-hmm. and to limit their voice to the voting bloc. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it becomes sort of the, it's a rhetorical tool and it becomes sort of the justification because what you read in the papers is this idea that, you know, oh, um, inebriated African Americans are going out and voting and they're purchasing their votes. And you see these stories in the, um, in the newspaper and it's just an assumption that, any African-American voter is inherently unqualified unqualified to vote because Mm -hmm. they're part of this mass public. And what, to me, made it really interesting, and I don't know if you thought about this as well, I was hoping... You know, readers would, is I wanted them to sort of link to today, because we sure. see the same thing happening in our political discourse today. I right, mean, you, right. you turn on, you know, in the last two presidential elections, you turn on Fox News, and there's a whole bunch of hay about two people who call themselves the Black Panther Party in front right. of a polling station in Philadelphia. And I think that, too, is the mob public at play, this idea that, you know, by, by proxy African Americans aren't, you know, qualified to vote, and, and it feeds into that. And, yeah. you know, it and, 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 today it's not done in such explicit way that it's done through symbols and it's done through sort of, um, you know, dog whistles and things like this. But back then in the 1880s and 1890s, it was very explicit. I mean, you could read the newspaper and, you know, these ideas that I'm describing was done in very stark and very, um, and, and, and very explicit terms.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No,
0: you did an excellent job of, um, of sort of ex- explaining that and kind of showing the relationship between, uh, the media itself and black disenfranchisement; um, it, this, the two seem to be, seem to be moving in tandem, uh, which was which was pretty fascinating. Describe the Australian ballot. I hadn't heard of that before. The Australian ballot system and how they they got there from Tennessee, right?
1: That's right. It started in Tennessee, and it has a very—I mean—a lot of people actually who are listening to this probably know more about the Australian multiple ballot system than they think they do. And this there's kind of a funny story to this whole thing. In that, you know, when I was finishing up my dissertation, that was during the 2000 election in Florida. And I'm sure a lot of uh, the <laughs> listeners probably remember the 2000 election, oh, yeah. at least the debacle that that was. And I remember listening to um, the Jim Lear News Hour. You know, after the election and the recount and all this other kind of stuff, and of course, a lot of people probably remember the um, the chads and the, and all this in, in the recount.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: what people don't realize is that those people who voted in Florida in those counties that were having the recounts were voting in the multiple ballot system the Australian multiple ballot system in 2000. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that that's that's how you know crazy that the, the system was. Right. And the system came out of Tennessee. And what happened in Tennessee was that legislators tried to create a way to disenfranchise as many voters as they could. And of course, you know, has has much has the country and the government at that time, you know, preferred white supremacy, there still was some semblance of, you know, um, constitutional protections. You know, I mean, this is why in Plessy versus Ferguson, you do have the phrase separate but equal. And, and in reality, that, of course, didn't work. But in the minds of the jurists, you know, they believed that this was, you know, constitutional. And I don't want to adjudicate that here and right now, sure. but I do want to point to the fact that, that when these legislators were trying to disfranchise black voters, they couldn't write a law that says black people cannot vote. Mm
2: -hmm. You know, it
1: wasn't that easy. So they had to create these measures that would just... um, greatly impact impact black voters you right. know right. as opposed to just creating legislation that explicitly said african-americans cannot vote so one of the things they did in tennessee was they created a system called the australian multiple ballot system and what it was was this complex um ballot you know that pitted the names of people on one side to those next to them and, 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 and you know, what this thing eventually evolved into was the butterfly ballot system that created such a controversy in 2000 in the presidential election. And what it did, it was create, created over the seam of the ballot, you know, two people who are running for office right next to each other. So if you're not really kind of careful, you could mark the wrong, um, you mark the wrong name. And that was sort of one of the ways in which the ballot was um, confusing. The other way that it was confusing was that it came along with it very complex instructions you know and and the key to the thing was it was the multiple ballot system meaning that there were a number of boxes you know like a box one box two box three box four
2: mm-hmm.
1: and when you filled out your ballot you were instructed um... to put your ballot in the right box but mm-hmm. you had to read detailed instructions to know which of the four boxes counted because the other three would be thrown out <laughs> So. <laughs> What happened is the day before an election, the front page, and if you can remember, the, if you can think or, or picture in your mind the front page of a broad, you know, a, a, a broad newspaper mm-hmm. filled entirely with the instructions for how to vote, that's what someone had to read and understand, and if it told you in, that, in the instructions to check as opposed to make an X, you could have your ballot thrown out. Oh, wow. And so you had these really kind of complex instructions. You had multiple boxes, and you had this butterfly ballot system. And, and, and you know, the, the the combination of all these, these these things were known as the Australian Multiple Ballot System. And it was used in Tennessee for the first time, I believe in... 1888, if I remember the year correctly. Mm-hmm. And there were stories in Florida that said, wow, this is so great because it lim- eliminated so many of the black voters in places like Memphis. mm
2: mm-hmm. right? mm-hmm.
1: Because remember, this is also sort of an urban crisis, you know, the idea that blacks are voting because they're moving in large numbers to the cities during this time. And they are exerting some political influence. And so this was the way for Tennessee to to limit that in the the city of Memphis. And so people in Jacksonville were, were writing these editorials saying the state of Florida needs to adopt this. And of course they do in 1891. They adopt a multiple ballot system. And this is, again, done to limit or... You know, not it doesn't eradicate the black vote, but it limits the black vote to people who are um, at least literate.
2: You know, there aren't
1: literacy tests in Florida, right. but because of the institution of this type of balloting, one had to be literate in order to understand the directions and vote in the right places.
2: Right,
0: right. And now, any idea why they called it Aust- Australian? By was it?
1: You know, I don't, I, I don't know because <laughs> I never read <laughs> where <laughs> you know, where it came from. I just know that was the name of it in the yeah. Yeah, I just thought it was kind of random, okay. Um, what's the black I would counter- hesitate to think that it actually came from <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say that. Yeah,
0: I didn't, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, that's interesting. Okay, so now, what's the black counterpublic? You, you wrote about that too.
1: So, you know, these things are going on in the late 19th century, and, and you know, part of the point of my book is at the end of the Civil War, um, African Americans are sort of testing and contesting their rights as citizens, and so they come out to the public sphere. And they emerge has a voice, has a political voice in the public sphere, and there isn't a, a, a. while there are attempts to limit that. There sort of is also an experiment, in a sense, to to figure out what this is. And it's not until the 1880s, really, when African Americans become quote unquote, you know, a political problem for conservative whites, mm-hmm. that there are these measures that are enforced. And, and we talked about disfranchisement, the idea of limiting the black vote. Mm-hmm has one way to do this. And there was also Jim Crow, which you know I cover in, in a great deal in the book, that you know, Jim Crow represents a way to get at black political speech, as it does um limiting African Americans the right to vote. So these things are coming onto the political landscape at about the same time in the eighteen eighties. And what happens is that African Americans begin to create an alternative public sphere that they operate on their own, first covertly, and then it would come out into, you know, what we could call the majority public sphere, you know. And this is the thing that comes out of, um, we talked about Jurgen Habermas earlier, mm-hmm. and it comes out of the criticism of Habermas and his idea of the public sphere, because what critics of the public sphere noted was that he was looking at what he referred to as a unitary public sphere, meaning that there was a single public sphere, and those people who operated within that public sphere went there to create a political consensus, Mm -hmm. okay? And what critics said was, well, what happens if there's a group of people who are not part of the public or not part of this public sphere? What is it that they do? And they were specifically initially talking about women, you know, Mm -hmm. women weren't voting, Mm -hmm. you know. But were women um, in the public sphere? Were they creating a, pub, uh, a political dialogue at all? And they were sort of questioning these things. And they came to the conclusion that there was this alternative um, public sphere. You might even call it an underground public sphere where women could engage in some political discourse. And there's other authors who look at um, a gay lesbian public sphere as a, as a counterpublic mm-hmm. or subaltern counterpublic is mm-hmm. actually the term that they use. And so what I did in this case in this study is, I said, well, wait a second, African Americans do the same thing, and they create this subaltern counterpublic in Jacksonville, starting in the 1880s, that is sort of underground, that is co- covert, and in the private spaces, and at times, it comes out to the public sphere and debates the public sphere in a lot of ways. And so this was you know, a similar conclusion with you know, women and gays and lesbians. This idea that the counterpublic is a way to engage in a political discourse with the public. You know, when ideas in the public are sort of, um, you know, uh, not viable. You mm-hmm. know, because the public is controlled by bourgeois, by white men. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the, the counterpublic emerges as a way to test and contest ideas that are not popular in the public sphere.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Got you. Got you. And so. So one one point you make is about the role that, that the counter mob, uh, or the the black sort of counter public played in preventing lynching. Talk talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, there was a specific incident in eighteen ninety two that is really interesting. I think is indicative, at least, of the first time we see the black counter public emerge into the public sphere to create some sort of discourse, some political discourse in Jacksonville, and. To me, you know, if my argument stands and holds up, you know, there was no need for a counterpublic in the 1860s and 1870s because, af- because African-Americans were part of the public
2: sphere. Mm-hmm.
1: But as they're pushed out of the public sphere because of disfranchisement and Jim Crow, they create this counterpublic behind the scenes that emerge. And so in 1892, there's an incident between an African-American and white worker at the Anheuser-Busch Brewery in Jacksonville. And as a result of this uh, of this disagreement at the workplace, uh, the African American pushes this young white man, and uh, he eventually dies. The young white man eventually dies, and so there is sort of a panic, and there is the threat of a lynching of the African American who was taken into custody.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so what we see happening in the days following this event is a large number of African Americans take to the streets of Jacksonville with arms, you know with rifles and mm-hmm. march up and down i think about a four block radius of the county jail mm-hmm. to protect the African American man who was in custody. Now they weren't trying to free the African American man, they weren't trying to say that, you know, he did not deserve trial or due process, but they were just saying that a lynch mob, you know, which was threatening to be formed was not going to operate. And the reason that I suggest that this is evidence of the counterpublic is the way in which, firstly, all of these African Americans had guns. You know, mm-hmm. like no one none of the um white people in Jacksonville realized that every African American family was armed with a rifle. Mm-hmm. And This had happened, I believe, over a two-year period, because two years earlier, there was the threat of a lynching in another case, and it, of course, didn't happen, but I think it sparked this organization behind the scenes to say, okay, Mm -hmm. if there is a lynching which takes place, what is it that we are going to do, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And African-American leaders in Jacksonville worked behind the scenes out of view of the white population, and they began to purchase guns in large numbers, and Mm -hmm. they were- also getting trained in how to use those guns, and they also were getting trained in the laws of um, of of um, public displays
2: mm-hmm. in Jack.
1: So Now, what I mean by this is, like, can you imagine? And this, I wouldn't even say imagine the year is 1892, but you know, imagine the year is now, you know, 2013, sure. and you know, say. 40 percent of African-Americans in the city take to the streets with rifles and begin marching, right? One would think, well, well, the police are going to do something about this, right? Right. But what happened back then was that these African-Americans who organized this counterpublic knew exactly what the laws were, because a lot of the organizers of this group were former police officers. They were black police officers from the Reconstruction era. So they knew Jacksonville law, and they knew that they could walk the streets as long as they were in two-person files. Once there were three people in one place, it was considered a mob, technically, to the law in Jacksonville, right? <laughs> so all these people were instructed to only be two-person files. Right? And they just walked up and down this four block radius in two person files and never stopped and just kind of marched and marched in precision, you know. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is the mayor of Jacksonville, you know, of course, panics because there's this large number of African-Americans with guns out in the street. There's threats of a a white lynch mob that's brewing. And he calls out to the chief of police and says, I want you to arrest these African-Americans. And he says, I'm sorry, but technically they're not breaking the law. Mm -hmm. And they knew they were not breaking the law. It was purposely done, you know. Mm -hmm. And subsequently, what the mayor eventually does is he calls to Tallahassee and Tallahassee sends in the, um, the state militia. And when the state militia comes in, these African-Americans with guns go home and the state militia protects this African-American um, suspect. And then he eventually goes to trial and so on and so forth. And the thing was, and again, this is why this sort of represents this notion of the counter public is that later on at least for the next 15 years and this at some point in time doesn't hold up but at least for the next 15 years whenever there's an african-american in custody and there's threat of a white lynch mob in the city of jacksonville the law enforcement officer in charge takes great care to protect that person from the lynch mob and makes it very public. Mm-hmm. And I think the only reason that that happened is because of that incident in 1892, is they wanted to state explicitly that African-Americans do not have to come to the streets in, with guns in hand to protect an African-American in custody. Mm-hmm. And this holds up, I think, for, you know, almost two decades, and we can talk a little bit later about, you know, how and why that ends. But it does happen, and it does, it, you know, it does transpire. And this represents that discourse I'm talking about, where you know, African-Americans weren't coming to the city council meetings and saying, what are we going to do? Is there a plan if there's a lynching going to take place? And these things weren't happening. But it was happening with African-Americans behind the scenes, and they were organizing. And when this event takes place, and it's sparked by this threat of lynching, we see the counterpublic become public. You know, we see it go from the underground above ground, and we see the discourse take place, this political discourse between this group that's a subaltern group, the African-Americans, who are saying, wait a second, let's have a conversation, a political conversation about the criminal justice system and the rights of African-Americans in the criminal justice system. And of course, you know, this is all done through actions, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's mediated over the course of, you know, those days of the riot and then the years, the years since. Mm -hmm. And so this, I think, is sort of the first example of uh, a counterpublic emerging in Jacksonville and functioning in the way that a lot of these authors who introduced this idea of the subaltern counterpublic and how the subaltern counterpublic works really kind of epitomizes that. Mm
0: -hmm. And even in the language itself, um, they called it a riot as opposed because what you described didn't sound anything like a riot to me.
1: Well, to White, it looked like a riot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's that's exactly how. It, and if you read the newspaper accounts, and even like the newspaper accounts in Chicago and New York, that reported it, said the 19, the 1892 Jacksonville riot. And of course, it wasn't a riot. You know, no one was no one was hurt no one was, was killed or anything like that. But yeah. this is you know, the idea of African Americans mobilizing with guns, you know, inherently to white minds during the time would be, you know, riotous. Right, right. It's the mob again, it's the mob public at work. It's this idea that, you know, African Americans African American assembly that's discursive is inherently mob like. Mm-hmm. You know, just like with the voting. African Americans who are voting in large numbers are a mob. Right. You know, that's the only way it can be interpreted in, in the minds of um, conservative whites at that
2: time. Right, right.
0: I know what you mean. Now, how, how did the, what was the reaction on the part of, the political reaction on the part of um, the conservative uh, Jacksonville community and the state of Florida to that, to this rising black counter?
1: I mean, you know, they, they wouldn't, you know, but here's the thing is like, You know, I call this a a, a political discourse, right? I say that this is a political debate, but it's not a political debate where two sides get together and they say, this is my issue, this is my, on the other side, this is my issue, how do we come to some compromise? It didn't happen in those ways. It all happened kind of behind the scenes. And of course, Mm -hmm. initially, you know, initially when um, the event takes place, uh, conservative whites denounce the entire episode, including white Republicans who had been, you know, the closest thing to allies African-Americans had in Jacksonville. Mm -hmm. And they all essentially disassociate themselves from the events and say, you know, this will never happen in Jacksonville, and we're going to do something to the laws so that if African-Americans take to the streets in this way and do these things, they will be punished. And so there's this sort of You know, if you think of it as carrot and stick, there's this stick approach on the part of conservative whites and political elites in Jacksonville to the event. They really did not want to speak about it head-on or in those terms. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is, I think it's about two years later, there's a similar event that took place, in that there's um, an African-American suspect who's accused of murdering somebody who is um, taken into custody, or at least is is trying to be apprehended by the... um, Local law enforcement, and what happens, and this is the very next event that would be similar to 1892, would be sort of the test case, right? Mm-hmm. And what the, um, you know, what the what the uh, what the sheriff does that's different is the sheriff deputizes African Americans mm-hmm. and has an integrated posse to mm-hmm. get this African American, put him into custody, bring him to jail, and then when there's threat of a lynch mob covertly take this person you know onto onto a train and it's so intricate because what happens is they announce that oh there could be possible threat of a lynch mob so we're putting this suspect onto a train to ferdinina which is north of
2: jacksonville mm-hmm. but
1: what they really do is they put the person on a train to saint augustine just south of jacksonville and they actually set up a decoy carriage to take the person take not that not not the suspect but who's supposed to be, who's portraying the suspect on a carriage to a train that's coming to Ferdinand. Mm-hmm. And so this intricate interplay to say, you know, we're actively doing our best not to repeat 1892. Mm-hmm. And I don't think between, you know, 1892 and when this event takes place, there are African-Americans and, and white elites who get around the table and sort of map this out to say, well, if an event like this takes place, we need to integrate a posse and we need, to show evidence that African-Americans are, um, you know, safe and protective customers and like that, but it happens because of that event in 1892, and so the interplay here is not, you know, you have to sort of read it as you would, um, you know, there, there's a term for this in anthropological uh, circles called the hidden transcripts,
2: mm-hmm, you know, the
1: mm-hmm. idea that people do these acts and do these things that, you know, have a meaning that's understood, right. That's not explicitly stated. And I think, you know, this is what happens here. So, you know, you got to take the long view of this event and look at this event from really, you know, years before the 1892 event, to years after to really understand the political interplay mm-hmm. that was taking place between the black counter mm-hmm. and the public at large. Okay.
0: And now describe the process by which private spaces begin to become segregated
1: in Jacksonville. Well, the interesting thing about private spaces is that, you know, private spaces are supposed to be outside of the public. They're supposed to be outside of public view. So a private space could be a thing like a church, a school, a home, Mm -hmm. things like this. And we really associate Jim Crow segregation with public spaces, Mm -hmm. and we You know, a lot of us conclude that, well, you know, Jim Crow had this impact on public spaces because it was supposed to be the separation of races Mm and public space. But at the same time, and and I would even say maybe even before Jim Crow becomes um, the law of the land in a place like Jacksonville, Florida, private spaces are beginning to be segregated. Mm -hmm. And this was not so much the case in the 1860s. You know, after the Civil War, there really was, I think, a genuine attempt, at least on the part of sympathetic northern whites to integrate private spaces with African Americans. And there's all these reports and all these letters about white and black religious congregations coming together, worshiping in the same place. And in the eighteen in the early eighteen seventies, we see that the pressure on I guess you, you can call it maybe reconciliation. You know, mm-hmm. the part of trying to bring conservative whites back into the fold creates this fissure between liberal whites and African Americans in a place like Jacksonville. And the first places where we see um, the fissures take place are in the private spaces. You know, initially, churches become segregated. And they become segregated not because of law, but because whites and African-Americans begin to sort of throw the towel in and say, we are going to have our own churches. And I don't think you know African-Americans are the ones who initiate this. It's certainly um, whites who do this. And initially, it's of course conservative whites who don't want to worship at all in a, in a church that has any black member. But in churches that did have black and white members, There was so much pressure on the part of northern whites who were living in Jacksonville to enforce the idea that, you know, um, whites and blacks needed to be segregated in church worship, that they begin to leave those denominations, and Mm -hmm. sort of, um, by the 1870s, churches in Jacksonville become racially segregated on their own, not because there's a law passed or anything like that. And the same thing happens with schools. Mm-hmm. You know, um, because you know, some of the schools were connected to churches. You know, at least the, the private schools were. There were some public schools, but there was this 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 practice of taking white students out of schools that were integrated. You know, initially, really in the late 1860s, and then going on through until the 18 not 1890s, when the state of Florida comes in and says, "Here's a law that mandates." In any school, public or private, they had to be racially um, segregated down to the teachers. Like, you couldn't have white teachers in black schools. Hmm. And so these private spaces, you know, begin to be segregated before public spaces do. Hmm. And, you know, this sort of, you know, creates, I guess, the precedent or has a, a, a... a really negative impact on the public sphere, or at least the ability of the public sphere to be integrated and to be democratized. It really kind of sets the tone that you know this racial segregation is going to start here in this place, but then it's going to move and sort of um, encapsulate all of um, all spaces in Jacksonville, public and private.
2: Right,
0: right. You tell a great story about um. A gentleman, Mister Payne, I think was the last name. That sort Daniel of, Payne. yeah, and it it, it explains sort of how the segregation of streetcars was sort of um, it wasn't exactly codified in the beginning, right? But it gradually became. Just describe that for us.
1: Well, Daniel Payne was the um, the senior bishop of the uh, the African and Me- African Methodist Episcopal Church, Amy Church. And he was in charge of South Georgia and North Florida, and so he used to travel to Jacksonville quite a bit and at the time in the in the early 1880s when when he becomes um, notable for defying segregation in Jacksonville he is I believe, 73. So if you can imagine a 73-year-old man in 1881,
2: mm-hmm. okay,
1: and he had been a black abolitionist. He was born to, um, I believe his parents were freed, but he was born in Charleston, South Carolina. His parents his parents send him up north for an education. He ends up living nor- up north, becomes an abolitionist, a famous abolitionist, then gets into the Methodist Church, becomes a yeah. senior bishop, gets a doctorate you know, and then after the war, you know, becomes bishop of the Amy Church in in Georgia and Florida. And what happens is he is in Jacksonville, and he is um, being sent to Ferdinina uh, to attend a meeting, and he had just been in the practice of never taking trains, railroad trains, because uh, he knew that they were beginning to become segregated, that they were... This is the first introduction of black cars on public transportation. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And he refused to even be anywhere near a segregated system. So he used to take a boat. So if he had to go somewhere, like if he had to go to these meetings in Ferdinand, he would start out two days ahead of time, take a steamer, and go up to Ferdinand, as opposed to taking the train, which would be the same day, Mm -hmm. just to avoid what he described as this. He called it um the unpleasantness is the words he he used, you know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so what happens is um there were a group of African Americans who were going to Fernandina by train who were attending the same meeting, and they convinced him to travel together, and he said, "The only way I would travel on the train is if I'm guaranteed I will not be molested, you know on mm-hmm. the train." And so he goes into – this is the kind of person that he was. I mean, Daniel Payne could walk into the business office of the railroad, speak to the manager, and say, I'm going to board this train. And initially he had no problem going to the um, black car, but he did not want to be told to go to the black car. And so mm-hmm. that, that was what it was an issue for him, right? Mm-hmm. And so the manager of the railroad train gave him assurances, this was not going to happen. He says, you – Purchase your ticket. You go to the, you know, you go to the car that you're supposed to go to, and you will not be molested. And of course, what happens is he get, enters the train, and there's a man on the train, a white man named um, uh, Darnell, who was the, he's the principal of Cookman, the Cookman Institute, which eventually becomes Bethune Cookman. And he was a white Northerner, and he stops. Payne, on his way to the black car, and says, Hey, there's something I want to talk to you about that went on at a meeting. You know, they were both Methodists, and so they used to attend some of the Methodist meetings. And um, they decide to have a chat together, and so Payne just sits down next to him to have this chat about what had transpired at a previous Methodist meeting. And the conductor comes in, and imagine a white working-class conductor, and tells Payne, to go to the black car, and of course, this is what he was trying to avoid. And mm-hmm. he said, well, you know what? I'm going to get off the train, and the train had been moving. And Daniel Payne says, "Please stop the train so I could leave." And the conductor says, "No, jump off," and pushes Daniel Payne off of the, um, you know, off of the car with his luggage. And he's five miles out of Jacksonville. And so imagine a 73-year-old man. Being pushed off a train, it was probably going about five miles an hour. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't going that fast, yet being pushed off the train, having to walk back to Jacksonville with his with his bags in hand, and so this inspired a national movement. And if you could, I hate to, I hate to use this because it, it sounds so cliche in these days, but he almost was the Rosa Parks of 1881. Mm-hmm in that he inspires this national movement that takes place in northern churches. You know, there's a great rally for him in Baltimore and in New York City that really kind of advocates for uh, an end to these racial indignities on railroad trains. And what you have to understand at the time is that this wasn't law. You know, there were no segregation laws on the books in
2: 1881
1: Mm -hmm. when this transpires. And so he decides not to pursue this as a legal case so he just kind of ends it there cuz he thought the you know there the, there was a there was a similar case going through the courts at the time and it not done really well and he thought he just wasn't going to be the second case to go through and not do really well so he kind of lets it go but it really kind of inspires this movement and inspires electrifies a group of people around the country mm-hmm. it's really i mean and that's the reason i bring up the rosa parks thing it's like it wasn't localized to jacksonville but it was a national movement to sort of you know get some sort of social justice for Daniel Payne, and what eventually happens is, years later, um, this issue again is um, is brought to the fore, and the state of Florida in 1888 wants to, actually in 1887 I think, wants to um, segregate by law railroad travel. Mm-hmm. So what we see happening is the state legislature gets together and says, we need this Jim Crow segregation law on railroads so we can avoid these, you know, quote unquote um, hostilities, <laughs> what they called them, you know, when African Americans would protest <laughs> and test the fact that they had to go to the, um, to the, um, to the, to the black car. Right. And so what's interesting and, and what goes back to this notion of a public is that African Americans, Travel from Jacksonville to Tallahassee, and they meet with white legislators and help to craft a law that they believe would, um, you know, keep their dignity on the system of Jim Crow segregation on the railroad cars, and that's sort of what's fascinating. I and mean, you could look at this and say, "Well, look, this, you know, is a surrender." But I would make the case that it wasn't. They're part of the political process. They're at the table, and they're helping to you know, craft this legislation that they're thinking is equal as opposed Mm -hmm. to unequal. Mm -hmm. Of course, in practice, it becomes unequal because, you know, the state legislature can pass a law and, you know, we can debate about whether the intentions of the state legislature in 1887 was to create equal facilities or not, but we know in practice they were not equal. Mm -hmm. Yet African Americans do come up to the state legislature. They meet with politicians, and they help to craft this law that they say, you know, um, have some semblance of equal. equal. Mm -hmm. Now, it's different, you know, you mentioned the streetcars, and within 20 years, or actually less than that, maybe 13 years later, when the state legislature wants to segregate streetcars, in florida cities
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's a much different response because they don't even consult with african americans at all in the letter of the law yeah. and the letter of the law is to create this unequal system so you know that's an evolution that takes place in you know uh political culture in florida between 1887 and 1905 that's really sort of important um distinction between the two movements between train travel and then streetcars. but yeah. well, what you have operating in jacksonville during this whole time is a black counterpublic mm-hmm. that does the same function. So in 1887, African-Americans are invited to and sit at the table with state legislature le- legislators and craft a segregation law that they find acceptable.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: You know, and again, we can argue whether it is acceptable or not. That's a different issue.
2: Right, right.
1: Yet in 1905, when legislators say, we're going to segregate public transportation on city public, you know, public transportation, mm-hmm. African-Americans are not invited. They're not part of the process. And it's really uh, an open, openly hostile piece of legislation to African-Americans. Yet African-Americans work in this counterpublic, you know, that had emerged in the 1880s and try to contest the law behind the scenes in order to, you know, um, ameliorate. Mm-hmm. the um the streetcar segregation law, which eventually they do, and this I go into great detail in the book about how you know in, in, in the the d- another difference between the the train travel and the streetcars is African americans don 't create a negotiation with the politicians but instead with the streetcar companies and say well, okay if you're going if you 're going to enforce this um, Legal form of segregation. These are the these are the ways in which we demand you enforce this legal segregation. So they don't end up negotiating with the state legislator, legislators like they do in 1887, but with the streetcar companies themselves. And so they're still part of the political process. And you know, but in 1905, the counterpublic and the ways in which the counterpublic functions is so much more important than in the 1887
0: incidents. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now describe the labor counterpublic. You wrote a bit about that, too.
1: Yeah, and labor is really an interesting thing because, you know, this was one of the things I mentioned when I first started working on this project as a graduate student. I was really interested in the labor question. And there's always this, you know, the great labor question for the South during this time is whether and to the extent that there is or was interracial unionism. And this was something that, you know, a debate that was first sparked in the late 1960s with the great labor historian Herbert Gutman, and, you know, people have gone back and forth over this question since mm-hmm. then, you know, to at least the extent there's interracial unionism, mm-hmm. you know. And so this was a question I was interested in. I said, like, well, what was the role of African-Americans in the labor movement in Jacksonville? And, and fortunately, Jacksonville had a very robust labor movement for, you know, a southern city during this time. Mm-hmm. And so there were a number of labor unions that emerged over the years. And what I've come to find out was that the first labor unions were actually not white unions, but black unions. And so the the labor movement emerges in Jacksonville in the 1870s and 1880s by black lumber workers, black mill workers specifically. And they began to strike, and they began to mobilize and organize for um, better working conditions, better pay, things like this. And, you know, not that they're wholly successful all the time. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. But what it does is it inspires white labor in Jacksonville to um, to mobilize and to unionize, you know, mm-hmm. because, you know, the African-Americans were doing it first. Mm-hmm. And so what's really unique and interesting in, in Jacksonville is that the labor movement, you know, the genesis of the labor movement was this black labor
2: movement, mm-hmm. before it was the
1: white labor movement. But then, you know, eventually... Um, Whites begin to dominate the labor movement in Jacksonville, but there are black unions, there are black skilled and unskilled laborers that are working and operating and exist, and they're not working in integrated unions, they're working in segregated unions, which mm-hmm. is not unusual in the South, this is the way things work. Mm-hmm. Yet they tried to coordinate with each other, and they tried to, you know, if there was a strike, white workers tried to bring black workers in, and we see this happening in 1902 with the Carpenter Strike that takes place. Mm -hmm. And black carpenter, the black carpenter unions um, worked with the white carpenter unions for a citywide strike, and they were successful in in their grievances because they were kind of united and worked together. But what we see happening between 19... 02 and 1912, when there is the streetcar strike, is that white workers began to become much more racially antagonistic to black
2: workers, mm-hmm.
1: and we see this specifically blowing over in the streetcar strike because the streetcar workers and the organizers of the um, local AFL all began to have sort of a fealty to the notion that. Black workers were inherently um, you know destined for lesser wages
2: mm-hmm.
1: lower wages that it was just part of the southern way of life that blacks could not be you know financially in the workplace equal to white workers and so when the streetcar workers come to the local labor temple and they request that black workers join in solidarity with the strike, black workers say no because mm-hmm. of the rhetoric that was being passed around this idea that. You know, black workers shouldn't have equal rights to white workers in the workplace. And, of course, you know, in addition to this, the one thing about the streetcars was that the streetcars were a white union and streetcar labor war was um, monopolized by whites. Like African-Americans could not become streetcar workers. So that was another sort of thorny issue. And so African-Americans who were part of the labor movement in 1912, you know, walk out of this strike and don't support it. Mm And, of course, it's one of the things that leads to the failure of the streetcar strike in 1912. But eventually what happens? and this is all part of this idea of the counterpublic, and one of the things that I mentioned, you know, is that, you know, labor represents a counterpublic, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because the labor movement isn't really part of the public, but the labor movement operates like a counterpublic against the um, the public. Because, you know, it, it's it, it's... You have to remember, in the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, the turn of the century. You know, even up through World War One. You know, uh, even though the labor movement was popular with large swaths of Americans, it was seen as sort of ruffians, You know, mm-hmm. seen as sort of, um, you know, not part of the body politic. This is, you know, and this is, of course, most emblematic in. The emergence of the AFL, who initially, you know, Samuel Gompers in the 1880s, when he forms the AFL, says, We are never going to strike because, you know, people who strike are, you know, <laughs> are not kind of gentlemen. You
2: know? <laughs>
1: and so, you know, that sort of sets the tone that, the, that, you know, the activities of the labor movement is really sort of conservative, right. you know, or, right. in order to appeal to the greatest section of the American public. Mm-hmm. And so in Jacksonville, In the 1910s, what you see happening is white workers begin to sort of push African Americans to the margins of the labor movement. So if the labor movement is a counterpublic, African Americans within this labor counterpublic are to the margins of a counterpublic, if you Mm -hmm. can sort of imagine all the boxes that that would be. And what they do is they form a counterpublic within the counterpublic. (laughs) Sort of (laughs) an interesting thing, is they begin to demand that the labor movement address racial equality, you know, as part of the labor movement. And this comes to a head in the 1920 um, Florida State Federation of Labor Meetings. And so, you know, there's the American Federation of Labor, and each state had their own federation of labor, and so each year the state federation of labor would meet. And so Florida, which was part of the South, would not allow African Americans who were members of the Florida State Federation of Labor to meet with the state body. So it was a segregated body that would meet and set the agenda for the year for the labor movement. So what happens in 1920, and the reason this happens is because the national AFL in, excuse me, previous to that, instituted a policy where African American workers could meet with the AFL. So they took this as a precedent, and said, well, if the national body is allowing African American workers to meet in an integrated body with the AFL meeting. We should be able to do the same thing with the state meetings. So there's two African-Americans from um, Jacksonville who come to the meeting in St. Augustine in 1920, and they say, we wish to integrate this body, and we wish to join this movement, right? Mm-hmm. And so it comes to the floor of the State Federation of Labor, and they, a majority of them voted down. There are some white workers who support the effort, not many, but there some who do, and they are on record for this. But most of them say no, and then the officials come out and they say, sorry, we voted not to let you into the meeting, and so the meeting will remain a whites only
2: meeting, right? Mm-hmm.
1: And so, sort of what's really interesting that happened after this meeting is it takes off in the black press
2: in Florida, mm-hmm. you know.
1: And one of the things that really sort of um, captures captured me in this is the. Um, Black workers begin to take to the newspapers, and call the Florida State Federation a pink tea party. Yeah. And this was the most amazing thing because I had to really sort of work with a lot. I know you know, one of the popular history reality shows is History Detective, mm-hmm. and I had to become a history detective to understand what a pink tea party meant. You know, because I just saw this thing. You know, these black workers were saying, "Oh, the Florida Federation of Labor is just this pink tea party." And I was thinking, "What's a pink tea party?" I had no idea. You know. Mm-hmm. And I went back into um, magazines of the time, and I found these references to pink tea parties, which were parties that were um, organized by church women. And so they would pick the color pink as the theme of the party. And so in a pink tea party, one could not say anything that was disagreeable or political because it was bad manners, you know, and it was the idea that, you know, women control this space in a pink tea party, and if any man comes into a pink tea party, it's understood that they cannot bring up politics, they cannot bring up any disagreement or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So these African-American workers are, are sort of, you know, taunting the labor movement in the state of Florida and in Jacksonville, as well, right. by saying, hey, if you're not going to address the issue of race and the labor movement, you might as well be a pink tea party. Right. And if you're a pink tea party, I mean, you've got to think about what that means in terms of gender. I mean, they're essentially saying, hey, you're an effeminate body
2: right. because
1: you have no teeth. You can't do anything. You can't say anything. And you might as well just be a group of church ladies. Right. I mean, that's right. a radical kind of thing for a group of black men to be saying, you know, <laughs> in 1920. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: but it also ties into the theme of your your book that this notion of um, of sort of trying to to render blacks invisible. You, you know what I mean? Sort of to, to to push the whole question of race to the side and and completely. Well, I mean, the argument that came from the South usually is that our blacks are happy. All the problems come from Northerners coming in agitating, and so that you know that that claim just counters that that's that's a, a counterclaim to to the argument that usually came from the south so i, I think that's, that's pretty telling um what what are you working on next what's next for you
1: um like actually uh i, I got really interested in the streetcar story and at least the public transportation story in this so uh, currently i'm researching the what I'm calling the first segregation, and integration of public transportation in America. So it's not, you know, primarily a Florida story, but it's going to be sort of a national story to look at the ways in which uh, public transportation is a space that political discourse takes place. And of course, the political discourse would be a uh, discourse on the meaning of citizenship. And so I'm taking the um, the streetcar story, or at least the the race and public transportation story. All the way back to the antebellum period um, into the 1830s and 1840s and I want to you know look at that and the ways in which public space on transportation was a location or a loci of um, political discourse all the way up through you know Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott mm. sounds
2: it
0: sounds very interesting um. Guys, you've been listening to uh, New Books in African-American Studies. Um, Our guest has been Robert Castanello. His book is entitled To Render Invisible. It's a great book. You should definitely check it out. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for joining us.